when should you have a baby? Should you have a baby? What age should you have a baby at? Should you wait until you're a certain point of your career before you have a baby? Should you have a baby at all? Should you be married before you have a baby? Can you have a baby without being married? Should you give up your career to raise children? If you are not having children, do you have to overachieve in your career to be worthy for the reason that you're not having children? As you can hear... These are the kind of questions that bounce around the minds of many women that I know. And it is this experience of this conundrum of this period of life that has been so beautifully written about in a new book called The Panic Years by today's guest, Nell Frizzell. Nell is a brilliant writer and now podcast host. And the book charts a period of her life from a breakup that she had at 28 and takes us on the journey from that point all the way through till around the end of the first year of being a new mom and all the beauty and wonder that lay between those two points. Welcome to Storyteller. This is a podcast about how and why we tell stories. I'm your host, Lisa Golden. I really just want to jump straight into this episode this week. If any of you are new here, please do check out the other episodes and subscribe and, you know, find us on social media and do all the other wonderful things that you can do to support the podcast. But I really just wanted to jump straight into this conversation with Nell because I just want to give as much airtime to the wonderful conversation we had about these topics that I just know mean so much to me, to the people I love, to I'm pretty sure everyone who's listening to this will know someone or love someone who is who are in these panic years. Can you tell from my panicked voice that I'm also in my panic years? <laughs> and Anel is just both an excellent guide for the story, this story, how we approach the story, how we need to change the story, the new little nooks and crannies in the story that have not been explored yet, and as herself, as a storyteller, the the passion and detail and humor and wit and sometimes anger and frustration that she tells the story with um, is just a lesson for all of us storytellers out there. So I'm going to stop talking and jump straight into this conversation with Nell Frizzell. Well, no, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Storyteller. I normally start off the show with asking the guests if they consider themselves storytellers. Great question. Yes, <laughs> I suppose I am. And I think uh, the more time I spend around my mother and my little child, the more I realise that I am a very paltry storyteller compared to my own mother, really? who is not a writer. <laughs> yeah, she's not a writer. She's not. Um, she's a teacher, so it's never been her job to tell stories, but she's absolutely formidable at it so yeah yeah yeah. I if anything I've got I've learned from her I'd say yeah (laughs) nice I know it's funny that because actually I think sometimes back on like the best storytellers I know was when I was a kid and it was like my dad's mates when they'd had a few drinks they're like Mm. killer storytellers and I'm like oh I wish someone had recorded them those uh, you know they just lost now but I'm like yeah those guys were like proper storytellers had the whole room you know what I mean everyone in the pub (laughs) turned in looking it's such an amazing it's like I imagine it's like being incredibly good looking that you just have this thing that you're sort of will you will draw people to you for the rest of your life if you can tell good stories you know and uh, as someone who's not fantastically good looking I've definitely tried to use storytelling as a means to kind of shore up my charisma (laughs) 
<laughs> um, okay, so well, normally I start with asking people about their background, but obviously your 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 book is 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 a portion of your story. So could you just start with telling us about how a you came up with the brilliant term the panic years, and um, just a little bit about how you came to write the book? Yeah, so I. Well, to answer your questions almost backwards, I wrote the book because after I had had a baby when I was 32, three, let's, I should try and, I really should know this by now because I've written a book and I put it down, but I can never quite remember how old I am. Not because I lie about my age, just because it seems completely irrelevant now. Anyway, yeah, yeah. when I'd finished, when I'd had a baby, I remember suddenly I could look back on this the five years of my life suddenly formed a kind of perfect arc, a sort of narrative arc that at the time they just felt like a kind of, that I was in the midst of something and I couldn't see the edges mm -hmm. of it and I couldn't understand the shape of it. And when I had my son, I looked back and I realized that the really significant, transformative, what felt like a kind of crisis that had happened to me at 28 when I'd come out of a long-term relationship and I had been made redundant and I, a lot of my friends were sort of moving or changing jobs or getting into getting married or getting into a very different kind of life to me. And at that time, I felt like a real failure. I now, I was then able to look back and realize that that was a really significant reckoning with something that's mm -hmm. fundamental and true and uncomfortable, which is that our fertility is finite. And at some point, the life that you're in has to sustain something long-term. And in my case, that meant having a baby. And if I wanted to have a baby, I couldn't have a baby in the situation that I was in at 28. And so I had to sort of change things. And it was done fairly unconsciously, I would say. Um, and so when I, when I had my son and I could look back and I saw the arc of this thing, I realized that that sort of pulsing momentum that drives under particularly women's lives, I think, the question of will mm. you have a baby or will you not have a baby? And if you're going to have a baby, how and when and with whom and where, it gives such a tension, but also such a momentum to your life. And I really yeah. wanted to give this thing a name because I saw it when, you know, in my late twenties and thirties, which is when it happened to me and most of my peers, I'd look around and there were women undergoing huge transformations, huge significant things were happening, happening for them. And we had no shorthand. We had no sort of common term for that. Someone at some point coined the term adolescence. And within that, they recognized yeah. that there was a physical transformation that we call puberty. And at another time, someone came up with a term menopause, which is the physical transformation that happens within your midlife. And I remember thinking, because of that, every time someone goes into that transformative period, they don't have to explain all the symptoms to yeah, people. Yeah. They can just say, this is puberty. Like either I'm in puberty or my child is in puberty. It'd be really embarrassing if every time someone said like, what's up, up to you? You'd have to be like, well, my libido has gone insane and my skin's terrible. I'm really angry with my <laughs> but, no, Like we sort of have a common shorthand for that. And I thought this, yeah. whatever this was that was happening to me and my peers in our late twenties and early thirties, if we just had a shorthand that allowed us to communicate with each other a bit more honestly and a bit more openly about what was happening to us and the decisions we were being forced to make and the way that our lives were changing, then it would be easier and quicker to kind of jump to a sense of empathy and without, you know, with 
without empathy, it's really hard to navigate that kind of thing, you know, without the understanding of your friends and without being able to imagine the lives of others. You can feel quite desperate, I think. And I don't mean desperate, like boohoo, poor me, I'm a white middle-class woman who's had a terrible time. I just mean you can feel desperate. You can be crying in the middle of the night thinking, what have I done to my life? When did it all go wrong? How do I get out of this? And I think if we had had more of a public conversation around this time, it would have been easier. So I wanted to tell that story. And as a as a journalist, feature writer, and someone who's told my life story for work over and over again in various forms, it seemed very natural to me that the best way to write that would be to write, to walk back through it from 28 through to 32 or 33, who can remember how old I was, um, when the book ends. And to to take instances from my life and open those out to say, what does this tell us about the situation more generally? So here I am in a campsite with an awful man who doesn't want to have sex with me. What does this tell us about the way we think about libido and commitment and relationships? Mm. Or, you know, here I am looking down a bloody pair of knickers because I've got my period when I was hoping I would be pregnant. What does this tell us about the way we think about age and fertility and miscarriage and all of those things in this country? So I... I felt like to write an honest depiction of this time, I had to open up my life and the story of what had happened to me. And I also think to tell, you know, this is all of your listeners absolutely know this, but it's always worth saying that if you want to write something that has a sort of wide, wider appeal or wider understanding, start with the absolute like most honest tiny detail of what happened to you you know if I say oh struggling with struggling with fertility is very complicated people go hmm if I say it's very hard to sit in a public toilet in a shopping mall and look down at a pregnancy stick and for it to say not pregnant with a smiley face emoji on the digital dial everyone can go yeah oh yeah. Oh, yeah, the smell of the yeah. smell of shit and air freshener and the nasty lighting and being all alone and having yeah. to wee on something that's really cumbersome and you're not sure if you're going to get someone else's wee on your hand. Yes, fertility is complicated. You know, I think if you can yeah. if you can yeah. go in with the detail of your story, other people will imagine themselves into that scenario much easier than if you keep it try to keep it general and try yeah, to keep it sure. non-specific and non-personal. Storytellers, this is just such important advice. This core human experience, it's why we can read about people in different countries, in different time periods, who have completely different experiences to us, but still feel something deeply in our bones. See them, feel seen, cultivate understanding, cultivate empathy. But I have to say, strangely enough, This is one of the very few books that I wasn't transporting myself. This one, this one spoke right to me and right to my experience. This one felt deeply, deeply personal. And that was a beautiful thing. And it does exactly that. It makes you feel seen. It makes you feel understood. And it makes you feel a little bit less alone. You know, what's crazy, what was crazy for me reading the book is I just, I had one of those moments when I was like, this has just been, um, these topics have just been 
there's been such a failure in the storytelling around them because I, I like drank your book up because it was, you know, I'm probably also very typically like in that, you know, I'm, I'm 30, I'm in media, I'm a white woman, you know, I'm, I'm in all the things. And I just thought, you know, I know so many of my friends are going through these things. I'm going through these things. And in the sort of triumvirate of career, love and baby, we're all sort of hitting, that's a few people have all three, but you know, there's this, there's a, a difficulty sometimes in communicating that both having the empathy for you have the one, but not the other, but they've got the other and not the one. Um, mm. So yeah. it's so interesting. I was just saying this to my, I was just saying this to my sister earlier today on our um, sort of fair, semi-regular Zoom mm. chat. It's so weird to do that with yeah. your own sister, but it really feels like if you, exactly as you say, work, baby relationship or, you know, loving relationship, if you are missing one of those, people will be very quick to talk to you about the other two because it's quite mm-hmm. awkward to talk about the thing that's missing. If you're missing two of these, people will only talk to you about the one that you have. And if you don't have all three, people feel a mixture, I think, of sort of fear and pity that makes them very awkward around you. I think, obviously, not always. If you're at various times in your life or from different backgrounds, that those things won't be true. But certainly in my life, when I was single and I'd been made redundant and I didn't have a baby, people really were keen to talk to me about like where I was going to go on holiday and where I was, <laughs> you know, like my haircut because it was, it was yeah. very awkward to talk about something that they mm-hmm. thought might cause me pain. And actually, mm-hmm. I really wanted the opportunity to talk about the the regret or the anxiety or the grief that I was feeling about those things and if you're someone who if you're someone in a in a relationship who isn't pregnant and might not get pregnant either through choice or circumstance I think there's an expectation that you will quote unquote achieve in other areas of your life to make up for that and I think that's a really unpleasant unfair thing to put on people particularly women that you know you you don't have to prove yourself because you don't have a child in fact all you have to do is all you have to do to have worth and purpose is to just keep being alive that's all you have to do as a human and you you know you don't have to suddenly become a windsurfing champion or open an amazing restaurant or travel the world just you don't have that it doesn't necessarily mean there is a lack in your life that you have to yeah. or a void that you have to fill it just means that your life is a different shape to the people around you have children similarly with relationships you know if you're single it doesn't mean that you are going to become fantastically career oriented to make up yeah. for the the lack in your life it just means that there is a different shape to your life it doesn't necessarily mean that you're lacking a partner you will have other relationships and other purposes and other causes for joy and pleasure and contentment and they I don't know and sim and then the big one work you know we are really uncomfortable talking to people about a job that doesn't give them purpose but a lot of people do a job that doesn't give them purpose and that's not where they find their meaning in their life Mm -hmm. something that really impacted me deeply about Nell's book was how she treated female friendship and the importance of female friendship. I think how women understand 
their networks of friends, the strength that they draw from them, the importance that they hold in their lives. It's something that women are very familiar with, but some maybe is sometimes not reflected in all of its complexity in popular media or popular culture. There's an incredibly moving scene in the book where Nell describes a moment at her friend's wedding where she feels the pain and the sorrow of potentially losing her and the emotion of knowing that someone who is so important to you is changing in a way that you're both excited for them but also a little bit sad for your own loss. just tell me a bit more about the the focus on female friendship and how you wrote out about it in the book because I just thought it was really it was really beautiful and it just spoke so true like just to start off as an example when you said when your when your best friends get married or when your best friends have babies that it is okay to have this mix of a feeling of a bit of loss as well as being deeply deeply happy for them yeah here's the thing about that that it's something that people have really responded to since the book's been out Mm. and if that really fills me with sort of not joy, but uh, uh, I'm really glad. It fills me with sort of gladness because I don't think I had ever seen or heard anyone talk about that before. Mm. And so I felt like it was a, there was something morally wrong with me to feel that. And actually now I realise it's incredibly common and it's absolutely not your fault and it's not harmful. If the first mm. time one of your friends or the third time or the 28th time one of your friends announces that they're getting preg they're getting married or that they're pregnant and you feel loss, anger, jealousy, a sense of betrayal, disappointment, envy, frustration, all of those, you know, because it signals at the end of a, a particular era in your friendship that's finished it shows that they are going to have a different set of priorities at least for the next three or four years maybe longer that you are no longer going to be the person that that friend calls in the middle of the night when their mum is ill or you're not going to be the person that automatically is their plus one at a wedding or whatever or that you're sad that you know their their pregnancy feels like another judgment on the fact that you're not pregnant or their marriage makes throws up your own feelings about your romantic past it's absolutely fine to feel all of those quote unquote negative things because they're feelings and they do no harm. And as long as you can allow them and process them internally, they will not influence your actions. And I think that was such a significant realization for me that the way I could be heartbroken that my friends were pregnant and I would still say, oh my God, that's so exciting. And I would be there to talk to them about their the symptoms of their pregnancy and I would be there when they'd given birth and I'd turn up with soup and flowers and I would be there at their parties and hold their baby and I was thrilled that they had children and I was thrilled to go to their weddings and I'd dress up and I'd make speeches and I'd get drunk and I'd dance with people and I'd have a lovely time because I'd allowed myself to have the feelings if I had, you know, I'd, ha- I'd had and processed and then let go of the feelings of hurt and envy and disappointment. So they didn't, they didn't interact with my actions. They didn't stop my, you know, I could still act as a good friend. Mm-hmm. And I think you, so you can feel sad and act happy is what I'm yeah. saying. And it's yeah. not a performance. It's not a lie, but you can only really act genuinely happy if you will allow yourself to feel the other things as mm. well. Mm. Otherwise, you're repressing stuff that will eventually explode like a volcano and that will drive people away. Also, because the book goes 
past me getting pregnant and into the first year of my son's life, I could then see it from the other side and realize, of course, your priorities change when you have a child. Of course, the way you navigate the world changes. It does change your energy for certain things, your sheer logistical ability to do certain things, to move through the world, the times when you're going to be awake, the times when you are going to be housebound, all of that. So it's okay to say for that period of time, it might be a year, it might be two, it might be three months, who knows, your relationships with your friends and your partner and your family are going to look very different. And a good friend will be there for you, even though the friendship looks different for that period of time. Yeah. And then miraculously, now that my son is three, I can say we we are finding each other again. You know, I'm finding my friendships. We're picking up where we were. And obviously we were in each other's lives for the last two, two or three years. But I, a lot of that time I was had half a mind to keeping a child alive. And yeah. that's a really significant responsibility. So I didn't always remember. I didn't always remember the name of the man they'd been on two dates with. And I didn't always remember that they had moved house. And I didn't always remember... Um, that their mum had gone on holiday. Like, there were things yeah. that would escape my attention because I was on a sort of level of constant adrenaline that meant I only had a certain kind of bandwidth and they would occasionally slip off it. And thank God they were kind and understanding about that. And now we can sit on the roof of my friend's boat and laugh and drink a glass of wine and chat about love and work and the things we're reading and it's like and you know my son will be at home in bed my partner will be checking that the house isn't on fire <laughs> and so we can rebuild a kind of friendship but I think there's a sort of terrible fear when your friends are having babies or quote-unquote settling down that you are going to be pushed out of that and what I would say is maybe you just have to accept that you're going to be pushed to the margins for a little bit, but mm. you will come back into the center of things if you can bear the change. Yeah. If you can bear the change, then the change won't last too long. If you fight the change, it might become a fracture that is hard to to come back from hard to mend yeah and I think but again I think that comes back to like naming it because exactly what you said it's almost if you if there was more common language about it and it wasn't this abandonment or whatever you you know whatever you could think about it it would just be like oh my my friend's kind of going into the valley and yeah. I just give them as much love and support as I can and awesome they'll pop out the other side covered in bruises and I'll be there with a glass of wine you know like <laughs> more like language about it it would be so much easier just even for friends to communicate with each other being like oh you know how we talk about the valley thing I'm super in the valley right now but I can't wait to see you when I'm get out the other side sort of thing yes that's a lovely way of thinking but yeah I I, if I'd had I can pinpoint like birthday parties where we were sitting around restaurant tables and thinking why is my friend like she is really different she's she's like a very different person to the person I knew what's going on I'm not we're not connecting as well as we used to. And I think if someone had just said, oh, I think she's in her flux. And I'd be like, aha, yes, she mm -hmm. is. That's what's going on. And maybe she was pregnant or maybe she was trying to get pregnant. Maybe she was struggling at work. Maybe she was like in the throes of first love. There would have been something that she shouldn't have had to name. I should have been able to say, ah, she's in the flux. That's I, I will give her the room to experience and process that and I'll be here and I will be doing the same no doubt at some point in my own version 
Another thing I think about, and I don't know if you would agree with this, is that in this time, particularly thinking about female friendship, other people's life decisions can sometimes feel like a judgment on your life. And that is really Hmm. tricky and really unfair because actually someone's life decisions are entirely made for their own purpose. So if someone chooses to come out of a relationship or chooses to have a child or chooses to move country or chooses to change job that's not because they think there's anything wrong with the way you're living your life that's just what they've decided to do but it can feel really hard to say to see a friend make a transformative life decision and to not feel like you are being judged on where you're at you mm. know when my friends got pregnant and I was single I thought oh they're all gonna pity me because I'm not with anyone and I'm not getting pregnant actually the very last thing I hope that was on their mind as they were conceiving a baby was ha ha Nell's single it's like, <laughs> <laughs> really gonna upset Nell um, yeah yeah like oh darling <laughs> let's let's have sex tonight because I really want to upset Nell like that was <laughs> it's, it's such a piece of the kind of frail human ego born of low self-esteem that makes you think that everything is somehow a reflection on you and it's absolutely not and if you so if you can take your little fragile hurt vulnerable human ego out of the picture for long enough you can see that other people's lives are just other people's lives and and you can hopefully live along a life alongside them and you know you you don't even need to be enormously supportive I'm not saying everyone has to retrain as a therapist you just have to rub along next to each other without feeling too hard done by (laughs) yeah yeah and I think you know what that just reminded me of is um I recently read wintering as well and that also that book also just reminded me like this idea that we're all on a like trajectory and we all go and we go and we all do it in time is so stupid and we all know that that's not how it works but for some reason we all find ourselves quite shocked when we like fall through the cracks and something changes Mm. um so Mm. yeah I think that's also just to realize like yeah, I I can't remember who said. Someone said to me when I was really young that they were like, "It's not, it's not linear. Basically, everyone has a season. Like we'll all end up learning the same lessons, but you, you'll know someone who learns it in high school, and you might only learn it when you're sixty, and you just can't. Yeah, you don't really get to choose. Yours will just happen to you in the order that it happens to you. That's an excellent point. Yes, everyone will have, everyone will learn that lesson, and everyone will have that season or that chapter in their life but it might not all be at the same time. It might not all look the same, but everyone is processing probably some of the same feelings, thoughts, realizations, experiences. That's a really nice way of putting it. Nell's book ends around a year after her child was born, but little did she know, did any of us know that there was a global pandemic around the corner that was gonna put a huge squeeze on those already pressured panic years. I saw that you had written about um, the panic years and the pandemic, and I resisted reading it because I really wanted to ask you about it. So, I mean, how how are you reflecting on these things now? Because that's definitely a conversation I've been having with my friends who are feeling, who felt already hugely time crunched, and then now have felt like they've sort of, quote unquote, lost a year. Yeah. Oh my God, it is a very hard time to be, it's a very hard time to be someone with a womb, I'd say that (laughs) at the moment, because you, you are either, you are either feeling like if you are someone who wants to get pregnant, you've lost a year, 
either you've lost a year of dating, you've lost a year of earning money, you've lost a year of access to fertility treatment, you've lost a year of um, being able to go to baby groups and all that kind of stuff. You've maybe lost a year of security that would make you feel like it was a good time to get pregnant. So I feel like that is, and as our you know, biology likes to remind us every month as we look down into our knickers, you only have so many chances. You know, there is, mm. my friend Eleanor Morgan said this brilliant thing, there are two absolute certainties in this life. One is that you will die, but the other is that at some point you will not be able to bear children. And we don't know, you know, as people yeah. with wombs and a finite collection of eggs, we don't know how many eggs we have. We don't know how many t- chances we have. And so to watch 12, 13, 14, however many it's going to be of those eggs leave our body unfertilized, I think even if it's only unconscious, there will be an unconscious sort of confrontation or reckoning there that is really hard. And I look to my single friends and realize that, you know, they have even, even if it is just entirely in their head, even if in you know their teeth, hair, body, income is all the same, in their mind, they are a year older and they are you know, heading towards a different kind of future than the one they thought they would have a year ago. And that's really difficult. And then there are people, you know, in my friendship group and family who are trying to get pregnant, no, like not with a partner through fertility treatment. And I think the the closure of clinics or the sort of logistical um difficulties that the pandemic has absolutely necessarily and understandably caused is heartbreaking you know to see people who have been pumped full of hormones mm-hmm. and had all of their hopes and thousands of pounds pinned on a procedure that then gets cancelled a week beforehand it's just unbearably painful yeah. and I sort of think, and I don't, you know, it's not my story to tell, so I don't want to get on my kind of soapbox about it, but I do think the kind of, the story that we've been sold by our kind of capitalist, consumerist culture, which is with money, you can get around anything. I think the pandemic is really showing that that's not true, that you actually, there are certain things right down into your very biology Mm. that money can't solve and you do have to sometimes make difficult decisions and put the priority of your health and your body and your family and your heart above that of money and making money and money can't solve those issues for you and you know as someone who is fairly anti-capitalist I I welcome that in some instances and I feel great sadness in others that people are have you know people who have sort of been told for years that they can with enough investment, solve all the problems that their life is throwing at them and now realising that that's not true and that's heartbreaking. Of course it is. And it's really unfair. And it's really unfair because there are still so many cisgendered men who don't know that, who feel like they can... We all know them. We all know the man who dated a woman in her 30s for five, six years, told her he wasn't sure, he wasn't ready. He, you know, he wanted to pursue this avenue. He wanted to retrain. He wanted to try this. He wanted to become a windsurf. He wanted to change country. He wasn't sure, wasn't sure, not ready, not ready. And then she's, what, 39, 40? The relationship breaks down. She might not be able to get pregnant. He might well get into a new relationship with someone 
eight years younger and have a baby and never realized that he's stolen something significant from that ex and you know I think that's if you are open and honest with a partner and that is a decision that you make together fine absolutely fine take as long as you like but if you are if you are not being open and honest about your intentions and you are just taking time because you like the idea of there being an infinite amount of time I think that's quite cruel Now, I know many of you listening are not uh, white women who live in London in their 30s who are, you know, considering whether or not they want to have a family. But this conversation around age and fertility hasn't been happening in the open enough and with good enough information, I think. And a part of that is because it's hard to tell when you should start being concerned about your fertility, in part because obviously all of our bodies are different and there's no hard and fast rules. We discuss how you make that calculation. Because any person with, no matter who you are, I can pretty much put money on it that there's someone in your life with a womb who you know who is considering having a child. Because that is still the large majority of people will become parents. And that person that you know and that you probably love is doing some version of this calculation in their head. Like as a cultural um point which is just interesting to see um, the two different cultures is I'm from South Africa mm-hmm. and what what what's been really interesting was I had picked up this message somewhere that I would never have actually explicitly said to anyone but I was just like you get to 30 and then you like I don't know what happens but you just it's done and I kind of was like Mm-mm, not too sure about that and what was interesting was actually turning 30. I, I felt then I almost like exhaled a little bit because I I, fa- I felt a bit more that the South African narrative was like, well, if you get to 30 and it hasn't happened yet, you're done. Like it's yeah. so different. And then I came, then we moved to London and everyone was like, oh my goodness, you've got until you're like 40. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> what? <laughs> that's not what I, and then, you know, that, that's been a really interesting reckoning of, I was like, wait, do I, am I already done or do I have a decade? So if you could speak a bit to the, the fertility, like myth that, that one well, of the fertility myth, but the fact that this, this, um, 35 as an age that these things aren't as certain as we've kind of been led to believe. Yeah. The idea that at 35, like, you blow out the candles on your cake and your whole womb just falls out of your ass and that's it, you're done. (laughs) It's so unhelpful. But also the idea that you can put it off and put it off is also unhelpful. What I think what your question really speaks to is the howling lack of research and attention into female reproductive health. It's insane how little we know really about how little time and money is put into researching the health effects of, say, contraception or age on fertility or you know, mm. the, the certain kind of lifestyle, to, you know, and actually not just female fertility, because as someone Rod Gilbert's pointed out recently, there's been an enormous increase in male infertility over the last 40 years. And we don't really know why, because no one is doing the research mm-hmm. into it. What are we researching then, if not this thing that is so fundamental to so many people? And when I say so many people, I don't mean having baby is the norm and everyone should care about it. I don't mean that. I mean, just statistically, if we look at it, the majority of people become parents. And so to act like fertility and parenthood is somehow a sort of niche, private, domestic interest is so unfair and so harmful. 
because it's it's about the most universal human experience we have apart from birth and death it's the only other thing that you know such a significant proportion of the population will undertake or undergo and so what makes me really furious is when I think about the way that people on the pill or people who are taking contraception of any kind or people who take emergency contraception or people who are trying to get pregnant, people who are having IVF, how little is understood about what that means for them physically and mentally. I, you know, the I talk about in my book the the correlation between people who are taking an oral contraceptive and people who are seeking antidepressants or attempting suicide and how those things are so closely correlated Mm. often and yet the idea that we might need to rethink the way we use or prescribe or even manufacture contraceptive oral contraception like doesn't seem to get much groundwork also where are the alternatives to the pill where you know where is the hormone free side effect free gender neutral contraceptive yeah like I'm and so many other things about this that I that's what makes me angry and I think the the way that we are sort of conditioned to think about our fertility just like you say is so subjective that you can either grow up in a family where you're told don't worry you have till 45 you know your great nan had a baby at 43 mm-hmm. or oh no if you you know if you wait till 30 to freeze your eggs then that's it you're over neither of those things are necessarily true your individual fertility is like everything else. It's like your muscle mass and hair color and the way your teeth sit in your head. Mm-hmm. That it's it's very particular and fairly individual. But we could do a lot better in researching it and understanding it and educating people in it. At the risk of quoting myself, I think in the book I say, in your you know, for a decade or maybe two, as a as a woman or someone with a uterus, you are expected to be invisibly uncomplainingly and magically infertile you know you're meant to just take care of that and no one like you are just expected I had sex with so many people who just assumed (laughs) I couldn't get pregnant because I had it covered yeah and then Mm. go through the flux you hit the panic years vroom suddenly you're expected to be uncomplainingly invisibly and magically fertile once you're once mm-hmm. people decide or your partner decides or you decide that you're ready to have a baby, the expectation is that you can then just get pregnant. The whistle's gone, you're off. And neither of those yeah. things are true. And actually, those both expectations wreak havoc on the mind and body of the person with the womb. It's, you know, it's really yeah. brutal because you really, I don't know, you only have so much control and that control can be really unpleasantly earned. You know, I hated being on the pill. I absolutely hated it. And I hated the fact that the morning after pill also vile, but they were kind of seen as the nicest, most socially responsible, funnest way to not get pregnant. Revolting. Revolting. Makes me so angry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Next up, I wanted to get some storyteller advice for you guys. And Nell tells us the incredible story of both the story of her giving birth and then how she wrote the story of her giving birth. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Get out your notepad. Take notes. 
so um for the for the the story uh, there's i tried to do like a little story the for the actual storytellers who are listening who want to learn you know a bit more about the the craft i was thinking holy shit um, i just realized i've not told a single story i'm so sorry i've just answered your questions i've not done any <laughs> storytelling story. here at all i haven't brought up a single anecdote <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what was your what was what is your favorite one for the? I've got some. I, I've got to say, I love the um just the early dating, just the descriptions because there there is just such a deep laugh and it. You know, sometimes you're reading books and you're like, how did we all date the same guy? How did he transverse the planet? <laughs> <laughs> He's a busy guy, that arsehole that's going around. Yeah. Have you got a favorite <laughs> anecdote that comes to mind? I have to say, my favorite anecdote or story from the whole book is my labor yeah my god I loved I loved writing my labor yeah and it's heavy going it's not like full of laughs like the having sex with a conspiracy theorist up a mountain (laughs) is full of jokes but the I think just in terms of a heroic tale I Mm. how can I put this I now understand why men have written epics about battles for thousands of years, because for thousands of years, they have watched women and people with wombs give birth and realize their innate uh, frailty, inferiority compared to that undertaking. There is Mm. nothing so heroic, so dangerous, so brave, so sacrificial so bloody so physically demanding as birth whatever that birth looks like I'm not like I I do not have skin in the game of there being a right way to give birth bullshit any birth that Mm. results in a healthy baby and a healthy parent is a healthy good pregnancy but Mm. however they however that baby comes out and whatever happens afterwards it is just the most formidable physical undertaking and so I think when I was Mm. in the midst of it and it lasted 50 hours so I had a lot of time to kind of be in this but it was like I've never experienced anything like that where your consciousness your the smell and taste and sound of the world the pressure in your body, the blackness of night, the like fluttering irrelevance of your limbs around this great pulsating earthquake that's happening in your body, the feeling of elbows and knees brushing through your ribs as you push a baby out, the like the feeling of air leaving your mouth like a kind of golden spiral into a universe that you have to trust in but you can feel as an enormous void just on the edge of your consciousness the chicken sandwiches you throw up the steps you plod up the (laughs) examinations that you're given under a like bright bare single watt bulb the rubbing of your nipples the pleather banquette that you kneel on the pajamas that you bleed through the howls all of it is just so incredible and I feel like anyone anyone who wants to tell their birth story and like there is a there is a duty for that to be heard by people in the Mm -hmm. medical profession friends family anyone because it's it's such a powerful and amazing story and for so long it has been tucked away made made sort of 
the product of squeamishness and horror, glossed over, sort of dismissed or um, altered, you know, like we, for, you know, Mm -hmm. for a few decades, we didn't let people give birth in the way they chose to. We kind of determined how they would give birth because, you know, in the way that was deemed easier and safer for the medical profession, luckily there's been a sort of movement back towards people having a say and that say might be I elect for a cesarean but at least they have the you know I want people to have choice and feel you know um in control to some extent but then the glorious thing is that once you go into it once the your uterus starts palpating you've lost control it's mad like you have completely lost control and I remember I've said this to other friends I remember after I gave birth thinking this is why this is why men invented war because women can do this and they needed something that made them feel in any way equal and I think I I you know I have read so many stories and watched so many films about people marching into battle and sacrificing their lives and watching their friends die and bleeding out and they're being blah, blah, blah. Actually, if you want to talk about the bearing of pain, the like visceral loss of blood, the tearing of flesh, the creaking of bones, the thousands upon thousands of people who have done it and die every year doing it, there's nothing close to the story of birth. It's phenomenal. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wrote the whole chapter in a day and yeah. it made oh, wow. me like it made That's me wild. feel I wrote it I wrote it all in one big go and I think it's often read in one big go by people and I've yeah, had lovely messages from saying that it made them cry it made them throw up it made people wince and then lovely things from men and people without wombs saying I've watched my wife give birth three times and now I feel like I understand what it was like for her having read the book and I think that's amazing isn't it to give people an insight to something they were physically present at but didn't really understand how that felt for the person giving birth yeah and I think if if you are looking to maybe if you haven't had if you haven't given birth like you know stories like that that is the power of them because like I've watched a few friends and I would say maybe there's like a bit of shock if there's no there hasn't been a good discussion I've especially my friends who had babies younger I could only really describe as Mm -hmm. a bit of shock because no one and then they then they've been so much better being like okay look I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen um yeah yeah but yeah you're gonna do a poo they're gonna catch it in a sieve (laughs) there's loads of stuff that doesn't get talked about and I I fought not fought but there was a lot of discussion my at one point the editor of my book wanted to end the book with me getting pregnant and I had to really sort of put my case that I think the panic now if you are if there is this panic that is to some extent engendered by the question of should you or should you not have a baby you should see what having a baby looks like to that person I always use this analogy and it's a bit silly but if you were to read a whole book about someone wondering whether or not to move to Brazil, you would want to hear what life in Brazil is like. <laughs> like you need to, yeah, yeah, if you're wondering yeah. whether to move to Brazil, like you want train. to read a book by someone who's gone to Brazil. And so if you're wondering about having a baby, you want to have a little insight into what having a baby is like. And having a baby, who knows when it starts? Does it start when you conceive? Does it start when you give birth? Does it start when you're, you know, you hold the baby for the first time? Who knows? But at some point, you want to see the outcome of that decision. And so I think that's why I kind of argue to have the labor in the book. 
because I think it's really popular. And like you say, there are lots of people who aren't allowed to talk or don't feel enabled or brave enough to talk about it. And I think that's that's a shame. That's just a shame. I mean, narratively, it's a shame because it, they're always incredible stories. You know, I've had friends who had had really like re- very heavy medical interventions and people who had cesareans and people who gave birth on their sofas at home and all of those stories are fascinating and told with such passion and vivid detail they're always good yeah yeah (laughs) and I was just going to say like also I think the first the first year I think that's also because like I think how how I went when it went into the book it's also like the panic years it's it's this it is the whole it doesn't just stop the day the one you know it, it like I I appreciated reading more about that because I think that's also it you know you're curious about like how your life changes and how your identity changes and, and you all the things you fear I guess coming up to it just having that that little bit run past the finish line so that you can you know it's not just like and then you have a baby and boom you're fine it's all good bye-bye like yeah 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 then you have a baby and then you stop worrying. It's magic. <laughs> Every All of those questions just slide away on a big stream of albumin and you're all okay. The amniotic fluid washes clear yeah. your psyche. No, of course, if you have a baby, then the major transformation, um, is that's when it starts. And if you don't have a baby, that's when the major transformation in your peers starts. So I think this is a story that's relevant for people who are going to and are not going to have children because it will Mm. it will to some extent sort of um characterize the tone of your life for a few years and I'm not I'm actually now that my son is three can say that that change in identity like I was saying in terms of friendship it is irrevocable but it will also keep changing. You know, being a mother of a three-year-old is very different to being a mother of a four-month-old. And that's very different to being a mother of a year, a one-year-old. And that, I presume, is very different to being a mother of a seven-year-old. Um, so the changes keep on happening. But some of the things that you will experience in the early stages of the panic years, loneliness, heartache, uh, a sense of self-doubt, ambition, um libido all of those things keep going when once you have a baby and they actually some of them become much more acute my anger ooh, the fury I felt mm. unbelievable completely unlike anything I'd ever felt before I had a child the loneliness totally unlike you know I thought I'd felt extreme loneliness before nothing like the loneliness of 12 hours at home with a tiny crying infant who might die at any second like that is true loneliness for me um libido like that is hilarious after like the the way that your hormone like there's so much stuff that is still really significant and I think whatever it is that drives that panic where and it's really about the decision making of who you are and what you want is not solved by either the arrival of a baby or the arrival of a menopause it it keeps going but I think there is something there's something very palpable about that that change in identity which I really wanted to explore in the book and I really wanted to tell the story of what it's like I really want to tell the story of what it was like to be the mother of a nine month ten month old baby because I feel like a lot of those people are not in the workplace they're not in public spaces 
they're not often writing books or TV shows, although increasingly they are, and I'm thrilled about it. So for a long time, that experience was sort of silent. We didn't really know what people were doing for those 10 hours that they weren't either in a park, a cafe or in a workplace. We didn't know what they were getting up to. And it's in the same way, you know, we don't really know what old people, unemployed people, people on no income, you know, all of the sort of underrepresented demographics who don't get their stories shared very widely because they don't have the ability or the logistical resources or the time to write those stories. Um, those stories can then get missed or ignored or undervalued. And I think it's really, there've been lots of people who've done this, Candice Braithwaite, Clover Stroud, Laura Dockrill, Alexandra Hemsley, like people are writing about it in a brilliant, beautiful way now. Um, And I'm really glad because I think you, I've I've read a lot of books about male academics and I, and that's fine. But that's not an that's not a life I'm ever going to have. So I can pro, I can read another good couple of hundred books about early parenthood. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, amazing. Well, now thank you so much for um, giving me your time. Um, where so I wanted to ask you how, how are you enjoying your podcast, your new podcast? I see you about you're three episodes in. So nice! It's so nice. Yeah. I love podcast. Like it's just so fun. I don't know what I wasn't doing it before the pandemic, but it just feels like every week I have this really significant social interaction with a couple of people that then gets given to as many other hundreds and thousands of people who want to involve themselves in it. That's such a joy. It's such a joy. And um, also, when I was little, my ideal job was to announce the stops on the bus or the train. So just like any vocal medium, I think, is like toot toot. Love it love it (laughs) amazing um and where i will i'll link to everything in the show notes but where can people find you on the interwebs i am on twitter at nell frizzell and i'm on instagram nell frizzell too and you can buy my book from all good retailers uh the panic years and if you do buy it i would love if people leave a nice review because apparently that makes a massive difference i've just like the whole the curtain has been pulled back in a wizard of oz style to me about publishing and apparently those things are really important uh so yeah please buy the book and give it to your granddad your ex-boyfriend your mother your landlady anyone anyone give it to anyone (laughs) amazing cheers well thank you so much thank you so much Thanks again to Nell for joining us. All links and everything were in the show notes. Um, just get the book, guys. Get the book because it is a roller coaster ride of storytelling. So yeah, for reflections this week, I just I really was just reminded again the power of hearing someone with a similar story to you. I'm I'm, I'm more happily in the world of people who have really different stories. That's like the joy I get out of reading. It's the joy I get out of podcasting, which is like learning and you get to travel around the world and times and characters and you can learn all these wonderful things. But wow, the the power of reading something that just speaks to you and your time and your experience and 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 again like not perfectly yours but just something that's a bit more familiar than you know star wars is a really beautiful reminder that your voice and your story 
if you have one if you're sitting on one and you're not sure do it tell it please write your beautiful gorgeous story because there'll be people like me sitting out in the world that will just make them feel so so seen so i hope that's a little call to bravery i know i know there are some beautifully creative people who listen to this show so if you've got a story in you tell it as usual just follow me at all the places you can email me the email addresses in the show notes um i'd love to hear from you i'd love to hear what you think i've got a sneaky feeling i'm going to hear a lot about this one which i'm so excited about so until next time 